Take your Bibles out and turn with me back to the book of Colossians, if you would please. Uh, Lord willing, today we'll close out our series on the book of Colossians, 12 messages now. This last one looking at verses 2 through 6 of chapter 4. And we're talking this morning about faith impacting a believer's prayer, speech, and witness to outsiders. A believer's uh, a faith impacting a believer's prayers, speech, and witness to outsiders. Continuing that same section that Paul has been in for uh, ser- several paragraphs now that we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks. So I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open to this passage of Scripture. If you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, If you would take that Bible out and find Colossians chapter 4. And as we've said in the past, if you do not have a Bible of your own, please take that pew rack Bible, write your name in it, and consider it a gift from our church to you. Now, if you have a Bible at home, don't take the Bible. Leave it for somebody who may not have one. But if you don't have one, please take it. And I mean that. We want you to have a Bible. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Beginning there in verse 2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of whom I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Father, we thank you for these words, and again, we thank you for this little book. Such a powerful word to the church today about the supremacy of Jesus Christ and having no substitutes for Him. Lord, forgive us that oftentimes we look in other directions that cannot satisfy. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused upon you. And as we're focused upon you, Lord, help us at the same time to focus upon our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church and also upon a lost world and how we can be a witness to them. Lord, continue to open our hearts this morning to your word. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher and may he bring about in our lives the application of these truths on a daily basis. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, a number of months back, we did a series on Sunday morning on the Sermon on the Mount. I hope you remember that. We be- began that series on the Sermon on the Mount by studying the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, 
for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The Beatitudes went on to describe the kind of people that we are to be in our hearts and in our character. Then, after outlining what we are to be, Jesus turned and he said, You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. You see, if we're the type of people described in the Beatitudes, then we will indeed have an impact on those around us and on society. Folks, Paul is saying essentially the very same thing here. Paul is continuing what he started back in verse 1 of chapter 3. He's been telling Christians how we are to live and how we are to conduct ourselves. You see, theology has got to be lived out in daily life. Everybody has a theology. Just like everybody has a worldview, everybody has a theologian, you, uh, a theology. You're a theologian whether you realize it or not. And we're to live out our theology. Now what we see in this passage is that faith is to impact our prayer life, our speech, and our witness to a lost and a dying world. First thing I want you to note with me this morning is the fact that as Christians, we are to be devoted to prayer. We're to be devoted to prayer. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. We're being told not simply to be attentive to prayer, but we're being told to be absolutely devoted to prayer. It makes me think of a little story I read about some time ago about a certain people group or a tribe in Africa. Right after people come to faith in Christ in this little tribe, they are discipled as to the importance of prayer. That's one of the things they emphasize. And all of the members of that tribe who are believers, they have a little area out in the brush And and they make a little pathway to their little area. And when they get to their little area, they they beat down the brush in that little area and and the tall grass. And they essentially have a little prayer room or a little prayer cottage out there. And their path is well worn to their little prayer room, if you will. And they know when somebody in their tribe is not being devoted to prayer anymore because grass will begin to grow up on their path and in their little room area, their little outside room area. And so they'll pull that brother or sister aside and say, Brother or sister, have you noticed grass is growing on your path? Well, we're not to let grass grow on our path to our prayer closet. The believer is not to be casual. The believer is not to be lax 
about prayer in his or her life. Now, folks, without a doubt, the classic uh, text in the New Testament on being devoted to prayer and persistence in prayer would surely have to be that little parable Jesus told on prayer in Luke chapter 18. I've given you those verses on your sermon notes page. If you don't have that, you may want to turn with me in your copy of the Bible back to Luke 18 because I want you to see what Jesus is saying there about this same matter. He says, uh, Luke says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice To them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, folks, it would be a great mistake to compare God with this unrighteous judge. Jesus is not comparing the two, he is contrasting the two. And Jesus is saying if an unrighteous earthly judge can be moved by a little widow's persistence in prayer, her devotion to prayer, don't you think the righteous heavenly judge of the universe will give attention to his elect who cry out to him day and night? I tell you, he will answer them speedily. But then there's the kicker. The end stress rule of some of the parables. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on the earth? It takes faith to be devoted to prayer, doesn't it? It takes faith. If we don't have faith in God and that he hears and he answers, we're not going to be devoted. But Jesus and Paul making the same point. We are absolutely to be devoted to God in our prayer life because we are nothing without Him and we can do nothing apart from Him. Notice that Paul goes on to give two further statements about our prayer life. He says, first of all, that we are to be watchful. It has the basic meaning of staying awake or being awake. It often calls for Christians to be alert or watchful in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 12 of the 22 New Testament occurrences of this word, that's the context. In those passages, believers are not being called to watch simply for the return of Christ, but rather to be mindful of their own lives, to watch their own conduct in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. 
In other places, we're called to be watchful to the fact that we have an enemy. We're to be alert to that. But again, the context of all of these passages is on the believer's life and the fact that we live between the times. You see, the first advent of Jesus Christ ushered in the last days. We are in the last days and have been so for more than 2,000 years. It's what Peter pointed out in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, that the coming of Christ ushered in the last days. The coming of Christ brought in the last days because Jesus is the complete and final way that God speaks to mankind. All of the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And so with the arrival of Christ in Bethlehem, the last days were ushered in. The next event to happen is Christ coming back, coming for his children. But in the meantime, we face many trials and tribulations. And so Paul is saying here that we've got to watch, we've got to be alert in our prayers. Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Folks, believers gain strength through prayer. God comes to our aid as we call upon Him. One of the assurances that we're given in Scripture is that God hears and answers our prayers. We know, on the one hand, God is sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign over everything. We know that. Scripture tells us. And yet we know at the same time that the prayers of God's people do indeed make a difference. How those two things work together is a mystery to us in our finite minds, but it's certainly not a mystery to God. He's sovereign. He directs all of the affairs of creation so that not even a sparrow falls to the earth without God's notice. And yet the prayers of God's children make a true difference as to the outcome of situations. Both truths are boldly proclaimed in the Bible without explaining or without trying to explain all the nuances between them. Folks, this also gives us the assurance that when we intercede for others, our intercession is effective. And so in verse 12, Paul says of Epaphras, Paul goes on in verse 12 to write, and you, you remember Epaphras is the one who brought the gospel to the Colossians. Epaphras had been to Ephesus during Paul's stay in Ephesus, heard the gospel, took it back to Colossae, and he planted a church there. And Paul says of Epaphras that he was always struggling, always wrestling for the Colossians in prayer for them. And Paul added that the prayers of Epaphras were helping the Colossians to have both maturity and assurance in their Christian faith. In other words, Epaphras' intercessions for them were effective. 
Now notice that secondly concerning our prayers, not only are we to be watchful, but we are also to be thankful. Thanksgiving is to characterize our prayers. God is a gracious and benevolent provider. He's given us life. He has sustained our lives. He's given us salvation through His Son. He's given us so much So much to all of us. He even makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust alike. Common grace. And so we're to give him thanks. Where would we be without him? God has blessed us in so many ways. I think of what David said back in Psalm 103. Back in Psalm 103... David writes a psalm of thanksgiving to God. And listen to what he says. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he starts enumerating all those benefits for which he's thankful. He says, He forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all of your diseases. Folks, one of these days, all our diseases will in fact be healed because we'll be in that place that's new, where he's making all things new. There'll be no more disease, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. He says, he redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He goes on to say, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that reason to be thankful? That's reason to be thankful, isn't it? Christians ought to be the most thankful people on the face of the earth. So Paul is saying be watchful in your prayers, be alert in them, and also be thankful. And then Paul goes on here to ask for prayer for himself, but not simply for himself alone. He specifically asked the Colossians that they would pray for open doors for the gospel and that they would pray for Paul to proclaim the gospel clearly. Now, Philippians chapter 1 reminds us of what Paul's circumstances were. Colossians is one of those captivity epistles. The book of Acts closes with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And he's free to write, he's free to have guests, but he's chained to guards. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul, uh, again, same context as the the book of Colossians. Paul says to the Philippians, he says, You know that what has happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. So that the gospel is going out to the whole praetorium guard, that elite guard. Paul wanted to take the gospel to Rome. He didn't know that he was going to go as a prisoner. 
But he was able to look back and say, wow, look at what God's done. I mean, I'm chained to some of the most powerful men in the world. I've got a captive audience, and they hear me talking all day long to my guests and writing letters, and then they get off shift, their shift. They go out to the world. Another guard comes in, guards me. He says, you know what? Look, look at this open door that I have. He tells the Philippians, don't be overly concerned about me. Look at what God's doing. Paul just wanted to be clear, clear in his message. Paul didn't pray for freedom. Paul is rather praying for the gospel message itself, the message about Jesus Christ. He calls it a mystery. In Ephesians, he speaks more about this mystery as to how God is reaching the Gentiles and he's making the Gentiles a part of his family where there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The dividing wall is being torn down in Christ. It's through the message preached that God is doing this and God is adding to his family. In Romans 10, he said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so Paul doesn't pray for his circumstances to necessarily improve. Rather, he prays that there would be open doors for the message. And that as God opens these doors, God would along with that give Paul the clarity that he needed To proclaim the mystery. Folks, there's so many things to unpack there if you think about it. We are to trust that God is the one who opens doors for the sake of the gospel. He's Lord of the harvest in every way. He opens doors. He directs the pathway of His servants. He gives them strength and He gives them opportunity to share the message. He gives clarity for the message to be properly heard and understood. And it's God that adds to His church. Paul, just like us, is simply privileged to be a part of what God is doing through the gospel message. But Paul asked them to pray for open doors and pray for clarity. Now, folks, I wonder, do you pray for your pastors and your Sunday school teachers and your Awana teachers and your small group leader? Do you pray for those of us who open the bread of life to you week in and week out? Maybe you wish sometimes we might say something a little differently than we would. Maybe we say something at some point that you don't necessarily like. But I wonder how much do you specifically pray for us, for the message that we preach, that that we would be clear in proclaiming the mystery of Christ. 
A lot of folks who complain about their Sunday school teacher or pastor might find their lives more honoring to God's work if instead of complaining, they would pray for us in the message that we speak. You know, I would assume that in many cases where there is a failure of effective proclamation on the part of the man or the woman of God, there is also, along with that failure of communication, a failure on the part of his people to pray for him. You see, there's a partnership in preaching. The missionary, like Paul, or the pastor, or the teacher preaches and teaches, but it's the people of God that hold his arms up, lift his arms up. And so what that means is that the pastor or the evangelist or missionary who's enjoying a great deal of fruitfulness out of his ministry can't claim all the credit. Because credit goes to those who held his arms up in in prayer. Likewise, where there might not be fruitfulness, In the spoken ministry, the people of God also have to take responsibility for not praying for Him. You see, we both take credit, we both take the failure, right? And so what Paul is saying here, I'm going to go and preach, that's what God's called me to do. You pray, I'm counting on you to pray that God opens doors for me and as God opens doors for me and I walk through those doors proclaiming the message of the mystery of Christ I will have you backing me and you will be lifting me up in prayer that God would give me clarity and everything I need to speak the word with boldness and clarity. Partnership. You see folks Sitting in the pew is not to be a passive ministry. Again, what we see here is the power of prayer. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes people. Prayer gives success to the opening of doors for the gospel. And prayer gives success for the effectiveness of the spoken word. Prayer is the very engine that drives the ministry of the church and the ministry of the spoken word. And so again, believers are being called here to be devoted to prayer. Secondly, as Christians, we are to carry ourselves with wisdom toward unbelievers. With wisdom toward unbelievers. Paul says there in verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Believers need wisdom in how we interact with the world, the lost world in particular. Ephesians 5 contains a very close parallel to what Paul is saying here. Back when, when Paul says in Ephesians 5, redeem the time, make the most of your opportunities. Very similar to what he's saying here. He also says in Ephesians, walk in wisdom. 
Specifically, what he's calling on us to do is to use our opportunities and our relationships for the sake of the gospel. In other words, we are to be gospel-oriented. We are to be a gospel-oriented people. We're to look at life, we're to look at all of our circumstances, we're to look at all of our relationships, we're to look at all of our opportunities as a chance to advance the good news about Jesus. So if you are a man who is a part of a classic car club, how can you use your time and relationships in that car club? For the sake of Christ. If you're a woman in a tennis club or a running club or a sewing club or a book club or whatever, how can you use your time and relationships in that club for the advancement of the gospel? If you're a young person and you play on a sports team, how can you use your time on that sports team for the advancement of the gospel? You see, what Paul is calling on us to do, just like I said, is to live gospel-oriented lives. You know, we think of inviting a friend to church or to a church outing or maybe to a Christian concert and, and all of that's well and good. That's great. But what Paul is urging us to do is use everything in our lives as an invitation to introduce the good news of Jesus Christ. If Jesus means to us what we say he means, this should not be strange to comprehend. You see, this is where religion and relationship are so different. If you only have religion then you pretty much live your life Monday through Saturday doing what you want to do and just simply making a living and living your life. Then you get up on Sunday morning, you go to church maybe once or twice uh, a week or for some once or twice a month. Then you leave church and as you leave church, you return to your quote-unquote normal life. That's religion. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ that's foundational and pivotal to your very existence, then it's not a strange or an unnatural thing that whatever you're doing and whoever you're interacting with, your Christianity comes into play. Two totally different ways of looking at it. Notice that he says, make the most of every opportunity. Every opportunity. What's the percentage on that? 50% of your opportunities? 80%? Do I have any hands for 90%? How about 95%? How about about 99.9%? No. I heard it. What is it? It's a hundred, hundred percent. Think about that. That's why I say we're to live gospel-oriented lives. Every day, each one of us has 1,440 minutes to be used 
for the glory of God. You can't save any of those minutes for tomorrow, and you can't drag any minutes from yesterday into today. And the Bible says each and every one of us will give an account of our lives one day at the Bema Seat of Christ. And so we are to make the most of our opportunities of every single opportunity, as Paul says here. You know, there are many villages that Jesus did not visit. But he visited those that he was supposed to. There are many people he didn't heal. But he healed those he was supposed to. Jesus got to the end of his earthly life and in John 17 he was able to say, Father, the work that you've given me to do, I have done. I've completed it. Make the most of your opportunities. Live well and finish well. Your relationship with Christ is to be simply who you are. There's no way to look at your life without somebody considering your relationship with Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, he concludes by, by talking about the verbal aspect of all of this, that our conversation is to be full of grace, it's to be gracious and seasoned with salt. Now, in the Greco-Roman secular literature of the day, this same analogy of salt in, in somebody's speech was used with the aspect of their speech being winsome. In the rabbinical literature of the day, this same analogy was used of one's speech being wise. Probably Paul is drawing on both of those, that our speech as believers is to be both wisdom, both winsome and wise. We are to adorn the gospel with our very words. And when one's life and one's words match up perfectly together, it is a powerful, powerful witness. Speaking about words, you know, Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Listen to what Dr. Uh, D.G. James D.G. Dunn says about this. He says, Paul envisions a church expected to hold its own in the social setting of marketplace, baths, and meal table and to win attention by the attractiveness of its life and speech. Some time ago, I told you about the testimony of a man from Tupelo, Mississippi. He told the story of his grandparents who married in the late 
1920s. They moved into his granddad's, uh, uh, they moved into the man, the husband's, granddad's old family home. It was a clapboard house with a little hallway down the middle. In the 1930s, they decided to tear down the old house and build another that was going to be their dream house that they were going to live in, raise their kids, and hopefully spend the rest of their days in. But he said that much to his grandmother's dismay, many of the materials in the new house were simply out of the old house. Now, I know a lot of people love that today, right? But they used the old facings and doors and many other pieces. Everywhere his grandmother looked, she saw the old house. There were doors and cabinets that would never shut properly. Some things didn't quite line up either. Some of the crown molding was riddled with nail holes. He said this house in some ways was a source of grief to her. All of her life she had longed for a brand new house all her own. And her new house was just the old house. Repackaged. Folks, when God saves us, the old ways must be discarded and thrown away. We aren't to see how much of the old life we can still drag into the new. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's been telling the Colossians since chapter 3, verse 1. We are to seek the things that are above. We are to take off the old, put on the new. And as we put on the new and take off the old, this is to be seen in all of our relationships in our marriage, in our parenting, in our work relationships, in our relationships at church, in our relationships out in the world, everywhere we are to live as a new creation in Christ. We still live in this world, but we're to live by the standards of the age to come. And our faith is to impact everything, everything about our lives. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? And as you do so, this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, this morning I want you to think about the priorities and the witness of your life. Think about your prayer life. Being devoted to prayer, does does grass grow on your path? Think about your speech. Is it full of grace? Seasoned with salt? Or is it full of gossip and criticism and negativity? Think about your opportunities. Are you using every opportunity for the sake of the gospel? Are you living a gospel-oriented life? As Christians, we are to have a great commission mentality. 
a great commission mentality. We're not to live as though this world is our destination. We're certainly not to live for our, ourselves and our desires. And if it's true that we believe heaven is as sweet as it is, and hell is as bad as the Bible says it is, then our goal should be to take as many to heaven with us as is possible. So all of life is to be bathed in prayer and every relationship is an opportunity to touch somebody for Christ. You know, sadly, too many have never caught that vision. There's too much of life that's still like the old I want to invite you this morning to make a commitment to live as the new man ought to live. Live as the new man ought to live. Not trying to see how much the old man you can drag in. Pray that your life, your speech, your conduct properly impact those around you for the sake of Christ. God, it is our prayer that it would be so in each of us. That day by day, week by week, month by month, each of us would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray.